Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We're in season 11 now, would you believe? But for listeners who might be unfamiliar with all this, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist, architect, or in this case, curator and writer about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. It's another face-to-face interview, people, and I'm delighted to be talking to Claire Wilcox. Claire is best known for her work as Senior Curator of Fashion at the V&A, where she stayed shows such as Radical Fashion, Vivian Westwood, The Golden Age of Couture, Paris and London, 1947-57, to and Alexander McQueen, Savage Beauty, as well as launching the genuinely groundbreaking Fashion in Motion in 1999. She's also a professor in fashion curation at the London College of Fashion and is on the editorial board of Fashion Theory, the Journal of Dress, Body and Culture. More recently, though, she's written a genuinely original and I'm delighted to say now award-winning memoir about her life, work, family and her relationship with clothes. Entitled Patchwork, A Life Amongst Clothes, which is funny, else unselfconscious, thought-provoking and elegaic in roughly equal measure. It's an extraordinary piece of work. I caught up with her last week in our London home. Hi, Claire. Thank you very much for doing this. How are you? I'm good, Grant. How are you? I'm all right, I think. I'm all right. This is the first time we've ever done a podcast with a small kitten running about. <laughs> what's, what's her name? In case she gets involved, I um, feel she might. Molly, yes. Molly, Molly the mischief maker. <laughs> and how long have you had Molly? A matter of weeks. <laughs> okay, a matter of weeks. So if, if she jumps on the, uh, the sound or anything, we'll, we'll know. What, we'll remove what, her. We'll remove her. Okay. Um, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Uh, it's a fascinating read. It's been described by the judges of the Penn Ackerley Prize, which you've just won as vivid, which it certainly is. But it's also kind of opaic, dreamlike, fragmented. There's no chronology. You're about 200 pages in before we discover where it was you were born, which was a flat in Pimlico. And the chapters are short, sometimes half a page long. I think I'm right in saying that you started writing it in 2014. So it's taken you the best part of six years to write. I mean, I'm interested in, as a sort of a writer myself, in how you wrote it. Did you know how the fragments were going to fit together or did that come later in the process? It did come later. It came very late, actually. And I think for a long time when I was writing it, I didn't have a plan, which is quite unusual for me because mm. normally my, my life is measured by the exhibitions I curate. And so to embark on something that was amorphous and that actually was, it's, it's really odd starting to write, having wanted to write for so long and believed I needed to write. When I did start, I felt such a huge sense of relief. I thought at last, at last time I'm writing. But then as I continued to write, I found that the thoughts that came up, you know, I'd write a short piece, I would just think of a title, it would trigger many more thoughts. And suddenly I had all these possibilities opening up. And then I had to choose between the things I was going to write about. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning, it was, you know, a really vast sort of landscape of possibilities. Mm -hmm. Do I write about the museum? Do I write about objects? Do I write about my life? Do I write critical essays? But actually all that just floated away and I was left with quite a sort of abstract collection of pieces, Mm. many of which had been written, I suppose, they'd been quite expansive when they began and then I edited them down. I I felt that I didn't need to go on for too long about certain things. I felt that having a few paragraphs was enough and sometimes that's because the subject matter was difficult. I think that 
the very short pieces tend to be the very early memories. And some of those early memories are quite difficult to mm. process. And I, there was one particular piece that it's a very, very early memory. It's about being in an airing cupboard with my brother. And every time I tried to write it or to work on it, I just felt very sad and I couldn't really understand why. And it just got shorter and shorter. And, and its brevity was a reflection of the fact that it was something that could only be alluded to. And I actually went to talk to him about it. I said, I don't know why this piece makes me feel so sad. You know, what were we doing in the airing cupboard? He was five years younger than me. And he said he didn't really know and he didn't actually remember being in the airing cupboard. <laughs> so I was going to ask, because memory is an interesting yes, thing. And I was wondering if he had the same memory, but obviously well, well, he didn't remember it at all. No, he didn't remember. He remembered other things, but he didn't remember this particular incident or maybe it's a series of incidents. But the fact is, is that I realised the story wasn't about the airing cupboard, although it's a lovely memory of being in an airing cupboard where you're not supposed to be in lying on top of warm towels, you know, and sort of in the dark. I mean, that, that was actually a tangible memory, but I was really remembering something else, some element of sadness about him or about how we were feeling as children at the time, that I don't need to know what it was now. In a way, the memory of the airing cupboard stands in for that memory of sadness. So you never found out? I never found out and I don't need to know. Mm. And I think that's the other revelation I, I had when I was writing Patchwork, that I didn't need to know. I've always felt as a curator, I did need to know and I couldn't not know and I couldn't make a mistake, particularly working with Savina, you just really can't make mistakes. Mm. And I've always over-researched every single project I've done. I've really tried my hardest to read everything that was important and you know, work really, really hard at it and, and make sure I did a good job. So I'm a hard worker. But when it came to writing Patrick, I realised that that was a different kind of hard work. It was work that was hard because I had to let go of the notion that hard work would get me to where I needed to be. <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I mean, that's a bit of a convoluted way of saying it, but it was about trusting my writing to carry what I needed to say or what I was looking for. We've talked about this need to write, Claire. I'm just wondering why you felt the need to write. The start of the book coincided with the death of your parents, I think. You've talked about being yes. buffeted by grief. Yes, yes. I think I've always needed to write and I've that desire or that sort of passion for language, passion for words has manifested itself in being a voracious reader. I studied English at university in writing exhibition catalogues, in finding that language was my ally when describing objects, you know, words and language and talking and writing for, for work have always been really, really important. But the one thing that was missing was me, in a way, writing for myself or, you know, in the, in the end, I felt that I sort of owed it to myself to do it. And the pressure just became untenable to the point where I just felt if I didn't, then I would somehow combust. It was a sort of a, a complete desire to just remove myself from my life. And that's what I did. I went away on my own. And just to allow myself to write and giving myself permission was the first step. And then you, of course, have that panic. Okay, what am I going to write about? And then in the end, it really just wrote itself. Where I did work hard on it was in the editing. Yeah. And I th think that's a very important part of patchwork is that it's actually a condensation, a con not a condensation, it's a condensing, maybe it's just condensation. <laughs> it's very con wet otherwise. <laughs> the paper wouldn't it's a, be yeah, exactly. It's a condensing of a far larger body of writing. Right. Do you find writing hard? People who write talk about being intimidated by the blank screen or the blank piece of paper. I mean, it's not mining coal, but it is quite tricky for some people. I find it's 
natural. It's not easy, but it's natural. It feels inevitable. So when I sit down to write, it's almost as if those sentences already exist and I just have to find them or allow myself to find them. Mm. I don't feel, I mean, I'm a sort of strange hiatus at the moment in the sense that patchwork is finished. Well, it's not finished. In some ways it's a beginning, but you know, I'm beginning to think, okay, what am I going to write next? I don't feel worried about subject matter because every single day I have a thousand ideas about different things, whether it's, you know, my own writing or whether it's museum work or, you know, I pick up a book and I get very excited. Writing a little piece for Crafts Magazine at the moment and have gone way beyond the original, you know, commission. And I won't submit it, but, you know, I just become fascinated and distracted. But in terms of the personal writing, the actual process I find hugely it's not easy, but it's as if it's a language that I always probably should have been employing. And in terms of subject matter, I don't really think it's what you write about. I think it's how you write about mm. it. I mean, can we talk about your writing style? Because I went through a bit of a vault fast, really, when I read the book. I think initially I was a bit irritated because at heart I'm a journalist, uh, which is all about clarity. And there's a degree of ossification in this work. I mean, often things aren't immediately clear, deliberately so. I mean, that must be very different from the writing you have to do for the day job. Was that deliberate? It wasn't deliberate, but I think it probably was a place where I wanted to be. I'd been so long in the other world of accuracy and certainty and accessibility. And I thought, well, given that I don't expect more than half a dozen people to read this, I really <laughs> do I really need to explain who people are? It's the least interesting thing of when I'm writing about a fashion designer, for example. Of course, in the v and I would say who they were, you know, be mad not to. But in patchwork, it became less and less important. Yeah, it's really interesting that because the, the temptation, I think, for a lot of people would be to dish dirt on some significant names. Mm. You've obviously worked with Vivian Westwood, Alexander McQueen, mm. but they're in, <laughs> your own husband. You don't name any names. Well, I don't name my family no. either. And I actually, somebody said that it was really interesting that at some point in the book, I don't remember where, my mother speaks to me in the book and uses my name. She says, um, I think I'm shaking sheets out with her and being absolutely hopeless. And, <laughs> and she says, you know, put some effort into it, Claire. And suddenly I name myself. So in a way, I'm, a, I'm the only person I do name in the book. And I don't know, I, to write a sort of straight factual memoir from, you know, it said, I didn't didn't interest me. I don't think it would interest anybody else. And, you know, who am I to say that my life is more important than anybody else's? So again, it was really, of course, the subject matter was my life, but I felt that what became important was how I wrote about it, not what it was about. And therefore, details such as dates, chronology, names became less and less important. Mm. Mm. And I think I was also supported in this hugely by my editor at Bloomsbury, Alexandra Pringle. You know, she she said... Um, when I submitted the, the manuscript, I just sent it in the order in which it had been written. It was sort of a layer of pages stacked on top of the other, metaphorically, and I just sent it off in that order. And she said, when are you going to organise it? Or when are you going to place it into order? And it hadn't occurred to me that that was, A, something I should do or B, an option. And I said, well, um, I can try it chronologically, but I don't think it would be very interesting. But I did try it. And I read it. And of course, it started with those very short early memory pieces. And then it swelled up to become much more, you know, expansive. And that that simply didn't work. It didn't have any buoyancy. You, mm. you know what I mean? You, mm. you want to be carried along by a book. I wanted the reader, but because by then I had started thinking about readers, to actually be taken by surprise. I didn't want to be predictable. And then I tried various other, you know, thematic structures and 
in the end, I just spread every single piece out all over this kitchen floor and the, the bar and just laid them all out and thought somewhere in here is an order. And I talked to my daughter about it and she said, well, you know, there's quite a few pieces about water here. And I thought, great, I'll put those together. And then somehow the different pieces began to sort of magnetically be attracted to each other <laughs> and, and others would be magnetically expelled. You know, you don't belong in this group. And I named them. I do I do really like naming things. I mean, you, you say I'm perhaps not always overt, but I when I named those groupings, they had their own identity. So in a sense, they could almost be extracted from patchwork. Mm. They could almost have a life of their own. And then by naming them, the various pieces had a home. Mm. But then the order of the sections perplexed me for some time as well. You must have had a significant or significant champions or champion of the book, because I'm trying to imagine the pitch to a publisher is not straightforward. No, no. I was really lucky to find a wonderful agent called David Godwin, who really, I mean, the basis of the encouragement was on a few paragraphs I sent him, because I'd been to see him about something else, very boring to do with royalties. And uh, he said, but that's not why you're really here, is it? And I was going, well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he said, but what do you really do? You know, wh- who are you? What, you know, wh- what, what do you write? So I said, well, oh, I've written a few, you know, paragraphs here and there. And he said, well, send them. And I thought, gosh, somebody's sort of interested in me as me, not me as the V&A person. So I sent him the pieces and he just kept emailing me saying, send more. I mm. want to see more. And that encouragement was hugely helpful. And he seemed to sort of have an absolute belief that I could create something that I hadn't really ever imagined and that I didn't know I could make. And then Bloomsbury picked it up. And again, I was extremely lucky to be found by Alexandra Pringle, who's the most wonderful editor and very empowering. And actually, we have a lot in common. We've led quite similar lives in some ways. And she was one of the founder members of Virago. And you know, I remember buying avidly buying every single book that Virago ever mm. published. And so there was a sort of commonality there. And I think with these two mentors, I was just very lucky to be not put under pressure, but to be given some sort of structure. And then when the manuscript was in and was edited, and Alexander and I began to work on the actual book itself, the material properties of the book, the jacket, the images inside that um, Julian took. Yes, your husband yes. Julian Stair, yes. he's a world-renowned ceramic artist. Yes. Well, he took the photographs in the book and Mm. that was really important. And his support, of course, has been immeasurable. And as we began to create this object, I, of course, wanted it to be beautiful. And so did Alexandra and so did Julian. And we just, um, again, applied the same principle that we reduced it down. We didn't want it to be sort of too colourful. So when the jacket was designed, it was almost it's got red lettering and then blue and then a, a detail of an 18th century white work waistcoat. And we almost sort of passed it through a process of of muting it, of tampering it down. It's sort of, it had to be beautiful, but it didn't need to shout. Mm. I think that was, that was my whole feeling about the book. Mm. If it was found by people and people liked it, readers liked it, then that was really lovely. But I didn't want to say, you know, look at me, look what I've done. I was almost, I guess, a little bit shy about it at the same time spilling quite a lot of information about my life. <laughs> there is a lot of information in your life. I mean, I'm quite intrigued because the cover has a row of buttons on it, Yes, I'm guessing. And you have a thing about buttons. What is it about buttons? I do have a thing about buttons. Well, they're really interesting on all sorts of levels. And, you know, as a fashion historian, their production, 
their function, their decorative aspects. I mean, Dickens wrote scathingly about the button industry in the 19th century, how, you know, associated with child labour and all those sorts of things. So there's a political element. But I think in terms of their tactility, which is something that Julian and I talk a lot about, I mean, living with a ceramicist mm. and, you know, the feel of things is really important. And then all my work with clothing and textiles is all about feel, it's all about the fingers. But buttons are something that we all touch every day without even realising. And the memory of those buttons, the sort of touch memory, is really important in the book. And that does link in with a very early memory of my mother teaching me how to put a button through a buttonhole and me buttoning up her cardigan from the top to the bottom and then undoing them and then doing them up all over again. She must have sat there very patiently while I sort of (laughs) laboured to push these buttons through the buttonhole. And if you think about it, it's a very simple and very beautiful process of securing one piece of cloth to the other. It's much nicer than a zip or poppers or hooks and eyes. I think buttons are lovely and I do like them a lot. And of course, we've got some Lucy Reed buttons in the V&A's collection, which I love. I love the story of how those were made. So Mm. I've got many, many buttons. In the book, there's obviously a lot about your, your family and your upbringing, which you're kind of alluding to. Some of it joyful, some of it profoundly sad. But there's also, as you've just been talking about there's a lot of thinking about clothes and their importance and why we keep them and there's a lovely quote in the opening chapter you describe going through the storage facility at the vna and you write that we are caring for high quality detritus of the past in order to understand who we are so the obvious question to ask you claire is is why clothes matter that's such a big question it is it really (laughs) (laughs) i'm going to sidestep for the moment and and explain why i ended up working at the vna i think when i was growing up and when I was at university and when I left and came back to London, it felt that there was only one place that I could possibly survive in, in terms of feeling that working in a place that cared about things was the only option for me. And so I set my sights on the V&A and I didn't really give up until they gave me a job. I just right. sort of pestered them. I mean, I did have a few... Well, you worked in a sex shop for a very I did brief work in period a sex of time, shop, yes. <laughs> which is kind of, kind of intriguing. It didn't last um, long now, though. No, I got the sack. Yeah, um, but you don't say why in the book. Can I ask now? Well, I... Yes, okay. Um, <laughs> so I... It was mail order. I wasn't dealing with the public. Right. I was in this basement. And it was very boring. And we didn't have that many orders. And I dispatched them quite efficiently. So I just thought, well, I'll just send something to a friend for a joke. So I did that. And they were alarmed and then thought it was hilarious. And then... <laughs> I did, um, yes, I did send a few things to, to friends um, and uh, was found out and got the sack. <laughs> so but, sorry, I completely distracted you from your, your need to join the v Yeah, uh, I think the first time I walked into the v National Art Library, actually, when I was doing my A-level history of art, I just thought I felt I was at home. And I think I've always felt that. I think the v has been really important to me in terms of my professional development, but also my well-being, if mm. I can say that. Mm. I think as a job, it's extremely demanding. I mean, it's it's not easy. And being a curator has become much more as expected of curators today. We have to be able to deal with all sorts of, you know, from the press to journalists like yourself. So we're not just locked away in an archive, you know, peacefully folding up bits of lace. That's you do seem very happy when you're in an archive, though. Very happy, yeah. very happy. And I think that being surrounded by objects, particularly textiles, perhaps even more so than fashion and clothing, it's to me, it's a, come back to your original question, I do admire fashion designers and I do 
absolutely, and, and transfixed by the way that a flat piece of textile can become three-dimensional, both on and off the body. And I think that the skill of the tailor in piecing together different elements where they still operate. I mean, I, I've been looking at a lot of um, early 19th century menswear at the moment, and the intersection between the sleeve, the way it's set into the armhole, and the way that the front bit of a suit jacket remains static, but the arm moves. I mean, it's a miracle of engineering. And it's to do with the properties of the wool, the way it's steamed into shape, the the um, the fact that it'll be cut on the cross to allow elasticity. So I think these material properties of material and how they inform fashion is what really interests me. It's that sort of intersection. Mm. I'm not particularly a huge fan of, I guess, the sort of um, celebrity side of, of fashion. I feel completely, you know, like a duck out of water in, in those contexts. And you know, I find it actually a little bit frightening. You know, I, I think as a creator going to fashion shows, I'd always sort of hide at the back. You know, you sort of do feel, and I don't go to them so much now, but when I used to go to the fashion shows in Paris, I always felt kind of frumpy and I felt that I, and then I would go, but actually that's okay. I'm a curator. I don't need to compete. Mm. That's not what it's all about. And so once I got over that anxiety, I just enjoyed the creativity and the sort of drama, the spectacle. Going to McQueen shows was extraordinary. I mean, Really, has there ever been a designer who's imbued clothing with such power, such mm. emotional power, and such performativity, but also such brilliant skill in manipulating fabric? So, I think that that's why I think clothes matter. I don't. I think they, of course, there are many different perspectives on, on fashion and clothing, whether it's from anthropologist or a fashion historian or a fashion journalist. But all I know is that clothing does matter. It matters more to some people than others but it's the one thing that we all have in common and whether we sort of disown it and say i don't want to be part of a fashion system or it's you know toxic or whether we it is kind of unsustainable well the cycle of fashion at least is is unsustainable yes. which you do point out just a little there's a tiny yes. few lines about it yes, but you, but you, you kind of yeah you kind yeah. of ignore really was that deliberate i don't feel i ignore it i feel i acknowledge it but it's not what the book's about. Mm. In a sense, there's many, many other fantastic champions of sustainability, particularly at London College of Fashion. We've got a whole department. And, you know, it's a, a very, very important subject. But actually, I didn't want to get waylaid by politics in the book. You know, that could be a subject of the next book. It's yeah. a very interesting thought that people will be rejecting fashion as it exists today. But then we've got the marvellous Vivian Westwood saying years and years and years ago, don't buy any of my clothes. Again. <laughs> but she still made them. Yes, but her point was buy one thing and buy well. And I think that's true of everything that Julie and I have created together in, mm. in our home here, is that we would rather have one object one painting, one piece of textile, one pot, but that we buy it with with thought. When did your relationship with clothes start? Was it that moment you were buttoning and unbuttoning your mother's cardigan? Quite possibly. I think that also the fact that my mother was a very good dressmaker, like a lot of women of her generation. And when I was very young, she ran a shop in West Kensington mm. called The Handy Shop. And she was selling knitting wools and blouses and sort of inexpensive things. And I, I do remember her doing the window. I think actually there's a sort of third aspect of my fascination with clothing, which is about the vitrine, about seeing objects through glass. I think glass is rather wonderful. There's nothing more beautiful than rain on glass and being inside. So I've always been really interested in shop windows and how 
the museum and the vitrine and the experience of looking at objects in a museum can operate and can become very beautiful and very mm. self-contained. It's almost that sort of fish tank thing. If you choose well and you have a vitrine and you put three really good pieces in with something absolutely fascinating about them, then you're well on the way to creating an exhibition. Well, that's quite interesting because didn't you used to do your father's window displays in, in his shop? I did. I did. To his embarrassment, I think. And so, I mean, he. Because I saw it described as a junk store, but was well, that what was? What yes, was it? I mean, he was a musician originally, and it's a very long story. But he opened a shop in the Fulham Road, and it was full of anything that came his way. And he was wonderfully open to, uh, you know, an old fridge as well as a beautiful oil painting, and it was this marvelous mixture of the detritus of other people's lives, but also very beautiful things. And he had a particular passion for furniture and chests of drawers. I remember him showing me how a mahogany chest of drawers was jointed and put together and pieced. And I really sort of loved being with him in the shop because he, he was so passionate about these objects. I think after I got the sack from the sex shop, I said, how about I do your shop windows, Dad? And he this said, well, makes me laugh every time. <laughs> <laughs> well, people who know me find it completely unlikely. <laughs> Yeah, anyway. Let's not so, get stuck on the second side. I've brought it back to second and I apologise. It is funny. Um, <laughs> so I started doing his shop windows with quite a lot of drama and flair and, you know, drapes. And I went out and got a plaster column. And, and I think he became a bit alarmed because it was get, getting more and more theatrical. But he'd said to me sort of before that, that the best free advertising, almost free advertising for any shop is to have your lights on at night. So he always used to leave the lights on. And after I started doing these shop windows, I'd often, because I lived about the shop, I'd often come home after going clubbing or whatever. And there'd be a small crowd in front of the window sort of admiring the display. So that sort of gave me confidence. And I think that mm. actually that is very much where I I sort of um, practised being a curator was in his shop window. There's a, a phrase you use that I underlined in pencil in the book when I read it where you describe your parents and their struggle to become middle class. Mm. Did they succeed? And was it important? It was obviously important to them. Well, I don't really know what being middle class means, but in a way it was a sort of form of shorthand again to to say that they began with nothing, but by the time they died, they'd lived a very rich and varied and beautiful life that was full of music and, you know, good things, good family relationships. They, they were always interested. They, mm. they, they were... You remember when they, they met Julian, they said the great thing about having children is that when you meet their partners, you always learn something new. And they became, you know, real supporters of his exhibitions. And in terms of my V&A exhibitions, they came to every single one. Mm. They wouldn't, never would have missed an exhibition of mine. I mean, you're obviously very close to them, Claire. I mean, this, really this comes through the book almost on absolutely, every page. Absolutely. But I think they taught me various really good lessons. One is to live life and enjoy life. In the moment. I mean, I can't help regretting some things, but, you know, basically they had a great zest for life. They were always interested in whether it was politics or music or art. They were fascinated and they they were just really good company. So I owe them a lot. You obviously have this passion for fashion, but as you mentioned, you did a degree in English initially. And one in ceramics. Uh, yes, well, yes. <laughs> well, that's, Okay, well, let's talk about that in that case. Because you... You joined the V&A, mm. you had a lot of fun in the four years you were there. Yes. But then you left to go to Camberwell. Yes. And you'd met Julian by this stage. And I think, did he encourage you to go to Camberwell? Well, he 
worried that he had. Right. Because I think I met him and I said, I work at the V&A, but I'm thinking of going to art college. I'd always wanted to go to art college. And in fact, originally I'd applied to do English and art at Exeter, but I ended up just doing straight mm. English. So I think I was always really interested in the practice of art. And when I left the V&A, it was for very complicated reasons, but we'd finished doing the redisplay of the fashion gallery. I saw stretching ahead of me a, a life of ledgers and documentation and annotations. And I really just wanted to be with the objects. So I went to art college to do foundation, which was wonderful. Mm. I had a fantastic time. I think I probably thought I was going to do textiles, but then I got seduced by clay <laughs> and seduced by Julian probably as well. But the thing about clay is that it's immensely tactile. Although at the end of it, I realised that I didn't want to be an artist. I wanted to know artists and be with artists. And Why didn't you want to be an artist? I didn't really feel that the world needed my art. In the end, I didn't need it either. I think that I was still looking for what I should be. Mm. But I will never regret going to Camberwell. I had a wonderful time. I think it brought me out to myself. It allowed me the sort of freedom to take risks. You know, if you're an artist, you're taking risks the whole time. You know, I shifted between different mediums from textiles to sculpture to painting to clay. I mean, it, it didn't in a way matter to me. I think my ideal art school education would always be four years of foundation because <laughs> I've also always found it quite difficult to decide what to do because everything seems so appealing. So I could quite easily have done another subject. I mean, it was just how it was. And at the end of it, I felt enormously enriched and liberated and somehow released. I mean, you would have been older, I'm guessing, than your, I was. your contemporaries. Older in years, years, not necessarily. Yeah. Did that make a difference, I wonder? I think I was more detached. And I also had the, I still had sort of, I was kept in touch with v and And I think I had the, you know, I remember v and being really supportive when I said I'm going off to be an art student. And, you know, I think they were wise to say, yes, go, we support you. And my parents who'd been very proud of me working at the V&A, didn't say, how could you? They just said, whatever you want to do, we will support mm. you. And so going to art college when I was probably 29 led to a great opening up of my world. If I'd stayed at the V&A in the way it was in the 80s, then it might have been a shutting down. But mm. as it happened, Campbell released a form of creativity in me. So that when I went back to the museum, I was fearless. Yeah, I mean, that's, what, what that's I interesting achieve. because you were away from the V&A for 15 years. I think when you first arrived, Roy Strong was in charge. And I'm interested to know if the building had changed when you came back and how. I think it was on the cusp of change. And when I applied for the job, I thought I wouldn't stand a chance, but perhaps they were looking for somebody who who had known the V&A as it had been and who had ideas. And I do remember in the interview getting you know, very animated about what I would do mm. if I was put in charge of the fashion gallery and the fashion collection. So I think it was just one of the, a wonderful convergence of me being really hungry to go back and also feeling, you know, passionately committed to the notion of the museum and exhibitions and displays, but also seeing the potential of fashion to act as a kind of portal through which new audiences could be found. And that's really the thinking behind Fashion in Motion, because I'd started going to fashion shows in London and, and Paris and found them really exciting, really performative and theatrical, just thrilling. I mean, they still are thrilling mm. things to attend. And I thought, well, you know, rather than the V&A just acquiring a piece from a fashion designer, let's get the fashion designer into the museum. Let's see what happens when you juxtapose the static and the moving, the current and the historical, the clothed and the unclothed. And so 
the first fashion motion I did was with Philip Tracy and we had very few models but the idea was that they would walk through the galleries of the museum. I was particularly interested in seeing what would happen when you put a live fashion model next to a sculpture. So this sort of interaction between the past and the present worked very, very well. It was, for a start, very exciting. Mm. It was visually stunning. And it really brought a new audience into the museum. And I I think that that was the sort of the moment I realised that, although I am quite shy personally, when I've got an idea and I think I'm right, I won't let up. Well, you describe yourself in the book as being, at one stage, egotistically shy. You say there are two yous. Yes, that's right. I'm fine with putting those two words together because I think in a way shyness can be, maybe in my case, it's a bit of a disguise for determination. So I possibly take people by surprise because they think that, I don't know what people think about me, but it's possible that they might think, well, you know, she's not going to stand up for it. Well, I will. Mm. I will stand up for it. If, If I believe in something and I think that the museum should be doing it, I really won't let up. And I know that um, Tristram Hunt said the other day, he was remembering me going on and on at him to get a particular painting for the Frida Kahlo exhibition. In fact, we didn't get it in the end, but I, I just kept going back and saying, <laughs> we do need this painting. And, do you think you're easy to manage? Oh, well, I, you have to ask one of my managers. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think, one should I pick? <laughs> I think I'm perfectly reasonable. I think that as about long myself as, as well. But, well, yeah. as long as we get our own way, we're, yeah. we're very reasonable. <laughs> It's interesting because you talk about your shyness in the book, as we said, but then you have a go at being a life model. Is that pushing yourself out of a comfort zone or or what was your reason for doing that? um, Well, I was broke. I was a student and somebody said, oh, you know, it's easy money. In fact, it's actually very hard to be a good model. But I did discover a kind of peace and tranquility in just sitting there or lying there on a plinth and being, you're, you're observed, but you're not, you're not interacting People aren't asking you difficult questions like you were asking me. (laughs) You're just there. You're embodied by your body. Nothing is being asked of you other than that to remain still. And I'm very good at remaining still. And so I kind of quite enjoyed it. Mm. And as I said, I needed the money. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there are some lovely moments in the book, Claire. I really enjoyed your story about you going off to India with a copy of War and Peace. Oh, yes. (laughs) And uh, every time you read a page, you tore it out to lighten your load. I also love the chapter, <laughs> laughing, thinking about it, about you missing a wedding because you couldn't find your contact lenses. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so so there's levity. Yes, I think my, my friend has finally forgiven me about that. But <laughs> I, Well, I mean, life is funny, isn't it? I mean, having a light touch is actually really important in everything I do. And, you know, when I do exhibitions, I try not to be too sort of heavy about it Mm. I think a lightness of touch is really useful in life generally Mm. and um, there have been lots of funny things that have happened to me over the years probably to you as well well I'm thinking about missing weddings and um, I didn't go to a good friend of mine's wedding when um, they were getting well obviously when they were getting married because I had tickets for pulp and I just thought reasonable well I just thought they were ridiculously young the thing would never last and I'm much better off going to see Jarvis and um, yeah, they're still together with four children, uh, 20 odd years later. Um, anyway, there, but there are some heartrending mm. episodes in the book too. I mean, there's a moment you write about a friend who had velvet trousers, mm. um, who you obviously adored and you turned up at her house and she'd thrown a big party, but you weren't invited. Mm. And you write, for years after that, I would wonder what she was doing and if she ever thought of me. 
never knowing what I'd done wrong. Did it take time to find your place in the world? Oh, it did. I think that the time I was writing about then, I was at university and really quite lost. I knew the things that brought me comfort, which was reading novels. And I think that probably as a child, I was always, you know, people were saying, oh, Claire's head's in the clouds and, you know, she's always lost in books. And I think that they were my refuge. They were my safe place. So I just read continually and avidly. And is there a bit in the book about me nearly getting run over by a fire engine? Because I'm... No, I don't think Oh, I didn't put that in. So, you know, I was on the way back from the library and I'm reading as I'm walking and I just cross the road without looking and, you know, nearly get run over by this this fire engine. And and they were sort of shouting at me. And I thought, well, I'm reading. (laughs) You should stop for me. (laughs) So I think that being lost in words was a place where nothing bad could happen Mm. and where I could imagine living another life. And I think that's also where, actually thinking about it, I became really interested in descriptive novel writing. So I became fascinated by descriptions of people, including their clothes. And that still fascinates me. I've been, during lockdown, I decided to read all 20 volumes of Zola's Rougeon Macart series and the descriptions in there of the textiles and the clothes of the families he's writing about is just absolutely fascinating. Mm. I mean, I can completely lose myself in, in Zola and have wondered how to do an exhibition about Zola and fashion should be possible. Mm. And there are moments when your children are ill and you write about or you write of a lost child. I know that your husband Julian has done work concerned with death. He did a project entitled Quietus. Is this book cathartic about the child that you lost and also the death of your parents? Not intentionally cathartic, Mm. but there's no doubt that when I finished the book and when I finally saw it complete with the jacket, I did feel a sense of completion. And I think it's true to say that I do feel that finally I've accepted what happened and that finally it doesn't hurt as much as it used to. Although, Mm. I mean, it's always, you know, grief and bereavement, they're sort of tidal almost. You know, you think the tide's gone out and it won't come back in again, but it does and it washes over you and you know you feel it again but in in a sense though the sort of the echoing nature of grief it does diminish and it does become part of your life it's not the only thing that ever happened to you it's one of the things that have Mm. happened to you so I think that it was timely that I should write this book after my parents died but how could I not include the lost child as part of the family but how can I how could I write about him in a way that was um, honouring our love for him, but also not being subsumed by sadness. So I think, again, writing, although it wasn't intentionally cathartic, it certainly feels to me right now that I no longer need to write about um, grief, mm. that it's very much part of the book, as is the humour and the curation and the objects and all the other things that make up a patchwork life. But I'm not haunted by it anymore. Mm. Mm. I mean, the final page where you talk about not being able to find the words to put on your son's headstone, it actually made me cry. There are moments where you just want to kind of jump onto the page and give you a big hug, actually. You throw in these kind of bombshells from time to time, like the builder who kissed you on the lips when you were a child and told you not to tell your parents, and you obediently, obediently didn't. I mean, other writers might build an entire book around that incident but for you it just seems like a a throwaway moment well when you're a child and strange things happen to you and you can't sort of compute them and you don't feel that you can I think probably as a child I did have difficulty explaining how I felt not that my parents weren't 
utterly loving, but I, I think that somehow I felt that bad things were better left unsaid and that I could manage them on my own. And I think the revelation of being grown up is to admit at some point that you can't manage them on your own. It did take me a long time to realise that, mm. that if something is really, really bad, and that wasn't particularly bad, I mean, I'm sure it's happened to lots of other young women, unfortunately, it wasn't really terrible, but it wasn't great. But I didn't tell them because he'd said, don't tell them. And I somehow felt that there was an authority there that as a child, I couldn't counteract. And so I think the best thing we can do for our children, our daughters and sons is to say, if something doesn't feel right, talk, Mm. tell us, tell us what's happened. I think because I was wasn't an only child, but I was five years older than my brother. I think I did spend a lot of time in my own world and a lot of my games were imaginary. I think I write about them in the book. I I didn't exactly play with toys. I imagined toys that I would then play with. So I think I was quite internalised and therefore I found it difficult for perhaps the first three decades of my life to actually say, this isn't feeling good or this is difficult. But the moment we are able to share with people who we trust or professionals, the things that trouble us or make us very sad or worry us or make us feel something's not right, the moment we begin to share that, the moment we can begin to get better, to heal from it, I think by bottling things up, it doesn't help. It just gets worse. It just burrows deeper. Mm. So, you know, in terms of our lost son, of course, I've never written about him until this moment. And I again, touch on it quite lightly in the book, that there's no need. It's bad enough already. I don't need to go into any detail. It's a huge loss and a grief. But I'm not the only mother to have lost a child. And so just by saying it, I hope that a reader who might happen upon that or some of the other things I write about in the book can believe that it's okay to talk about it, even if it's only glancingly. Mm. Amid all this deeply personal and emotional insight, Claire, there are these fascinating curatorial moments as well i mean you talk about in the storage of the vna you have these top hats sealed in bags marked with skull and crossbones because mercury was used in their making yes i mean completely fascinating and and the juxtaposition of this deeply emotional um outpouring it's not really an outpouring but i mean it's it's it's, it doesn't feel like an outpouring no it's not that was the wrong that was the wrong yes it's not skating across it either i'm I'm trying to work out what what it what it is in fact i think the word i use when I'm thinking about it is that I'm looking at things aslant. Mm. So when you say you're in a room and you see somebody sort of pass by you in peripheral vision or, you know, playing go overhead or something, there's something we're aware of it. Our sense is very attuned to change all of our senses. We don't have to look directly at it. So I'm, I'm a great believer in acknowledging, but not allowing whatever that is that's crossing my mind or that distracts us for you know good reasons or bad that it should not be given center stage Mm. and i think it's something that i use in the way i curate i don't really want to do a sledgehammer exhibition i i want the objects to speak for themselves and that what i say about them might gesture towards thoughts about something rather than saying i'm 100 certain because i never really am Mm. and i think that certainty in my job is it's, it's nice to say oh this object was worn on this particular date but actually, does that really help? I think what's more productive is to say that to a reader, on this particular date, these other things were happening and this object may have been there or it may not have been there. So mm. it's about placing it in history. But to go back to your question about 
What was your question? I don't know. Anymore. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but, look, but that's fine because our hour is very nearly oh. up. But I would just like to ask, towards the conclusion of the book, I think that you write, I yearned to have interesting things, to be well-travelled, to live in a shadowy house full of books and papers and all sorts of old things. I too would be complicated and well-informed. So I'm just wondering if you've achieved that. You don't mention a young cat in, in that passage. <laughs> Um, I think maybe, maybe you should answer that. (laughs) (laughs) That's past, that's not answering the question, Claire. (laughs) I'm looking at at slant. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, are you still ricocheting between uncertainty and doubt? What does the future hold for you? Always, always. It's a good place to be. Yeah, yeah. I think being curious and being uncertain and thinking about all the other possibilities around something whatever it is 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 a good place to be how tedious life would be if everything was certain mm. and coming up next at the vna do can you tell us yes yes we can. it's oh, um i can we're working on a menswear exhibition which is going to be looking at how fashion and clothing can articulate notions of masculinity very good well i look forward to that when is that going to be march 22, march 22. yes quite soon very good. Tomorrow in museum, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's going to rush towards <laughs> It's you. a rush. <laughs> <laughs> well, Claire, thank you very much. It was really wonderful. I appreciate thank your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Patchwork, A Life Amongst Clothes, is published by Bloomsbury and is available in paperback in all good bookstores. As ever, there are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.